Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 335. And with that one, we'll give a shout out to Vanessa DiBernardo. Pretty sure I've given one to her recently on the pod, but let's give her another. She played 1,335 regular season minutes for Chicago in 2021. She's the club's all-time leader with more than 10,500 minutes played in the regular season since 2014. And she's part of the only father-daughter pair to represent U.S. soccer. Her father played in the 1984 Olympics, and she was part of the 2012 team that won the U-20 Women's World Cup. Of course, along with teammates Kaylee Watt, Morgan Gatra, etc. All right, two chats today. First, with Coach G. Guerreri, longtime head coach of Texas A&M. G has seen players from his Division I program play in WSA, WPS, and NWSL. We talked about how women's college soccer has evolved as NWSL has lasted nearly a decade, unlike its predecessors. And then I chatted with Aussie Chris Hockman about the State of the Union for the Australian national team and also World Cup plans as we are just 18 months from the start of the 2023 Women's World Cup, which will be hosted jointly by Australia and New Zealand. And of course, there is a Jen's Planner segment this episode. We're going to talk about voting for the FIFA awards that were announced earlier this week. And of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone, that's always with two X's, and at KeeperNotes. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper, here with G. Guerreri, head coach of Texas A&M women's varsity soccer team. G, you've been there forever. I love saying that. Um, we don't have to date it, right? Like we we don't have to say how long you and I have been following women's soccer. Um, but I always love coming back to you for thoughts on um, college soccer, college soccer as it relates to NWSL, because you've seen so many iterations of it, right? You saw college soccer when there was no pro soccer. You saw college soccer when we had the WSA for three seasons and then the WPS for three seasons. And now we're in this unique position of NWSL going into 10 seasons. And I was thinking that that has to have had an effect on the college game. And in each iteration of women's pro soccer in this country, you've had players from AM come into the league. Um, so talk about how you've seen that, you know, the growth of women's women's pro soccer, but more importantly, the longevity of NWSL affect what you're seeing on the ground for college soccer. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, and this is my 30th year coming up at A&M. So you're right. We've 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 seen a, a, a few changes uh, and really we've seen a lot of really positive changes that have happened for women's soccer across the board, but um, having a, a viable pro league that is seen as a true professional league is good for, for my, my young women, because number one, it gives it, it fuels the fire of their aspirations to, for what they want to get out of the game. Um, it makes things, in my opinion, it makes things more realistic because if there's in those times when there was no, a professional league here in the United States. Um, then all of a sudden, the the goal was to play for the you know the women's national team. Well, that's a that's a mighty jump for for most young players to go from college 
directly onto the number one team in the world. And right. Especially a team that always has such longevity with their roster. And it's so fierce to get even a spot in a training camp. So having having a pro league has always been great because it allowed players to achieve their dreams of being a professional footballer, but it also gave them that one more step of development that they clearly needed to, to really compete at the international level. And, um, and I think that's across the board. And so you see how many different college programs now have been able to put players into the, into the NWSL. And I think a, a big part of that um, really kind of comes down to the fact that, you know, players are not shooting for, you know, the stars, they're shooting for something that's kind of attainable. They can come to college, develop into a, into a professional, and then go out and, and make a bit of a living as a, as a professional soccer player um, here in the United States. So it's, it's been nice to see, and it's been nice to, um, it's, it's been nice to be a fan of, frankly, and the growth of it has been great, but all of it, of course, corresponds maybe even as much in how far women's soccer has come internationally in Europe, in South America, um, in Asia, uh, you know, in other parts of North America and Canada and Mexico, you look at, at what those national teams are doing right now and and some of their club teams are doing right now and you go back to 2001 and it's it's you can't even compare it's so right. far they've come so far so fast well i remember how much it surprised me in 2001 when i i learned that wsa at the time was the first and only fully profession fully professional women's soccer league because i had assumed that the leagues in europe were fully professional. They weren't, they were semi-pro. Most people had second jobs, you know, some of those leagues barely even paid, right? At least they had regular league play, which definitely helped their national teams, but it wasn't something that you can do for a career. And now, yeah, like you said, you, you can't even compare, um, you know, especially when we're seeing, you know, how strong the women's super league is getting and how strong La Liga or Iberdola, I think they call it, you know, is getting and and the ticket sales for the big games and you know more TV contracts. But but I to come back more to eighty thousand tickets, more than eighty thousand tickets yeah. sold for El Clasico in um, in Spain. That's for for women's football. And I love it. You think about machismo. You think about whatever stereotypes that um, people would have had about women playing football. 25, 30 years ago, and to, to know that it's going to be a legitimate, well-played, high-end game in front of that type of environment is is remarkable. And it's and 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 you're seeing it in so many different places. That's that's the thing that's exciting for me is just yes. how many how many more opportunities women have to to really show what they can do and and to and to create. Um, little hero worshipers all around the world. <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, I think about your players, you know, they probably have, have to think about, okay, do I want to go pro? Yes. I want to go pro if I can, but they now also have the, well, do I stay in the States? Do I try to go abroad? What opportunities are there abroad? Obviously there's some countries where you can't make the jump unless you've played for your national team, but there are so many 
more opportunities. Um, and when you're recruiting for AM, does any of that come into play in terms of, you know, that you can say, hey, you know, Alyssa Mott's played with us and look, she's had this 10 year plus career in pro soccer, you know, um, Shay Groom, that kind of thing. Did, did, did those names come up when you're recruiting? Of course, of course. And we, we take great pride in, you know, how many of, of players have come through and developed here to be able to step right in and uh, and play immediately in the league. You know, Ad, Addie McCain from last year is is a, a great example of yes. someone who's raised here in Texas, comes to Texas A&M, um, has, a, has a wonderful career here, wins championships, and then is drafted by by Kansas City and by the end of the season is in the starting 11 for for Kansas City. I mean it's you know dreams come true is uh is is what is what you can show and again it just takes hard work and and the right focus to to make that that happen for you and a lot of god-given talent. But we see that in a lot of different places. You know, you think about you know different players from different parts of the country who are who have been playing in the league for uh, for quite a while is uh, is really neat to see. Well, and in the case of a player like Addie McCain, I think too of how you know she she was a big name coming out of A and M, and I think sometimes fans and even media expect a player like that to be starting immediately, but there is a jump between college and pro right and of course so you know it's it's like getting drafted it's like no that's not the end of the story that's the beginning of the story right and and there's another big you know hill to climb but you can climb it right well the big the the big thing after the draft is over is you know so many players who get drafted don't make the final roster and that's right. a lot of that has become is because of economics in the league in the in the early years that they had to keep small rosters. And so oftentimes, you know, if you if you were brought into a team from college, you know, you ended up being a, an amateur player initially because they wanted you, but they couldn't they couldn't afford you to be right. on, on one of those limited rosters roster spots. They were going to you know, they were going to pick someone who had professional experience overseas sometimes before they. uh before they brought in a, a homegrown American player, well, those days are 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 becoming further and further away um, in the rearview mirror. But it's still um, very very competitive. It'll it'll be interesting. It's always interesting to me to see on opening day when the league starts. You have these fifty people who were who were recently drafted. How many of them are on a roster, and right. well, how many of them have been have been shipped off someplace else to? to do something else. And, you know, there's different ways in the league. And, you know, we had three players go pro from, from Texas A&M last year. Um, you know, Adam McCain, who was drafted by, by um, Kansas city, Jimena Lopez, who was drafted by the rain, but then she went and played the full season in the, in the Spanish first division and then came back to the rain in May. Right. And then um, uh, Taylor Zemer, who wanted to go to Europe. And so she went ahead and took an option and she has a, a, a German passport. So ah. she was able, even though she played for youth national teams in the United States, she was able to go have a great experience playing with the top team in Iceland and playing in the champions league. And then, you know, getting ready for whatever is going to be the next move from there. So 
those are those are three completely different routes that were all afforded to uh, players playing in the NCAA. Well, and, and let's talk about this year's draft. Um, like you mentioned, 50 players picked, and that's by far the most we've ever had in one draft. Uh, previous high was 40 players, um, but of course we've got two expansion teams coming on, and they each got an extra pick, so that's why we're up to 50. So that's 50 players, but we should also acknowledge that with San Diego and L.A. coming in, that's 54, yeah, 52 potential roster spots obviously they've they've signed some big names but i feel like there's so much movement so much expansion happening pretty quickly right like louisville coming on board last year to get us up to 10 teams it's like there's more opportunities and i feel like even the maybe you're not always a starter but are someone earning regular minutes in the league suddenly has more value than they would have had right because here's someone that knows the league right knows what it's like to be a, a, a professional. But well, looking talk, at this this draft, oh, go, go ahead. Well, you talk about the 50 players that were drafted in this draft that you're going to go over, but you have to remember, too, that that's in addition to the players that were drafted last year, but because of the COVID season in the NCAA and the NCAA giving players not counting last the 2020 season against their eligibility – you had all these, quote, super seniors coming back who had right. been drafted by different different clubs all around the league, and they came back and played an NCAA season, and now they've gone off to, those, to, to start to be with those teams. So you actually have kind of a draft and a half of, uh, of players that will be trying to make these roster spots around the league. As opposed to last year where we really only had half a class because a lot of people drafted – Stuck stayed, around, stayed, yeah. stayed for the whole year, and I know it made it so confusing for fans and, and also media of like, wait, who's eligible, who's not eligible? But um, I know the league tried to give give the players options to make them happy, where they they did eventually say, hey, if you were picked last year and never reported, you can go back into the draft again if if you want a new someone else to take you, which is nice so that you weren't held to those rights, you know, forever. But looking at this draft, um, I mean, what really stood out to me on draft day was the number of schools represented uh, by far a record. It was more than 30 some schools um, in just that pool of 50 and more international players than we've ever had taken. But talk about how, the the draft process and i mean for for the coaches how they figure out who they want to draft like that's that's got to have changed immensely because like i said it really surprised me to see someone from grand canyon university picked in the first round but at the same time i was pleased i was like good they're not just going on name of like you know here's a big name school right right but i think she was i think she was a transfer that transferred into into grand canyon but i think there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why that could have happened. And of course, every franchise has their own, their own specific um, little issues. Um, one of the things that, that we just as a coaches group have kind of scratched our head heads about is because, because the, the coaching positions have changed so much within the league and even um, front office positions have changed so frequently in the league when it comes time for them coming around to the uh, to the draft, 
it, it seemed for many, many years that everybody was just in scramble mode of just trying to frantically figure out where players were, who, who players were, and kind of going from that. Um, technology, I think, has helped out quite a bit in exposing players. Uh, you know, the NCAA, we have a, um, we have a, a game-sharing uh, platform that also breaks down and goes statistically uh, called Instat, um, nice. which, which, which covers leagues all around the world. Uh, NWSL coaches have access to that. So um, it makes it to where they can search and find players a little bit easier than, than in the past where they were just having to purely go on, um, uh, you know, relationships that they had with, with coaches like myself and others around the league. And, and that must be huge because th- that's something that, that I thought about during the draft is like for the new coaches coming in who don't necessarily have a network in the U.S., you know, like Casey Stoney um, or K- Kansas City's new coach, if he had been there for the draft um, or even Louisville's new coach. Right. Like that that can be so overwhelming. You know, how do you navigate 333 division one teams, not even including D2 and, you know, the, the other leagues. So <laughs> that's a good thing to hear that, that you guys and, and the NWSL coaches have, have access to that. But yeah, aside from the technology also, part, how right, do they... And also a lot of those, a lot of those new coaches, Matt Potter, for example, at, mm-hmm. at Kansas city, he's no, he's no foreigner to the college game. I mean, right. he coached right. at Oklahoma, he coached at Washington state. He's been, a, he's been part of the U S national um, setup. And so, you know, he, he's, he's had his fingers on the pulse of the game for, for quite a while, but, but you're right. Coaches that are coming from overseas um, technology can, can be a, a real ally for them. But you still need to have some personal connections because I feel like there's one thing to look at a player's performance, right? And see, oh, I love the moves that I'm seeing. But from talking to coaches over the years as they're prepping for the draft, I find a lot of them seem like they have something they're looking for off the field too, whether it's a good teammate or can they adapt to change? Or, you know, if you're dealing with Orlando Houston, it's like, hey, have they played in heat before? (laughs) You know, like how, you know, do do coaches reach out to you and other college coaches and say, tell me about this player? Uh, yes, all the time. I mean, and, and it's not just about our players, but oftentimes it's players that we've seen. Um, so, you know, we tend to play one of the one of the more formidable schedules in in the country every year. Right. So there's a good chance that we've seen, you know, team we've seen, you know, we've seen Florida State, we've seen. Um, you know, UCLA, we've seen North Carolina, we've seen uh, teams across the SEC and the Big 12. And, and uh, you know, and so we have a, a pretty good, uh, I, I'd like to think that we're a pretty good resource for them to give them, you know, our impressions, especially on the kids that we would play against. Um, you know, those are oftentimes you want to know who are the, who are the players that are the scariest um, that you played against. And uh, those are the kids you usually want on your team. Yeah. 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 There's, I mean, the network, I love the network, how it seems like everybody is connected to everybody else. And even for that foreign coach, you know, once they make a few connections, they're kind of probably plugged in some way to, you know, the entire American (laughs) soccer network. Um, 
What do you think about uh, the number of international players being picked? Um, I know part of that this year was, hey, each team now has an extra international slot, so the pressure's off there. But it also seems like there's more and more international players playing Division One, where it used to seem like they were mostly in Division Two and, and other leagues. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Again, why are why are more coaches going overseas? College coaches going overseas to find players? Well, it's because of you know, young women have been empowered to play football. They've been empowered to to be raised in in pretty darn good systems that have them ready to play at at a, a level of physicality that NCAA soccer is, and can come in and make make really positive impacts you know and that's beyond canada and beyond mexico but um you know you look at you look at florida state as a is maybe the best example of of how international players have had such a a profound impact on the success of a, of a program over time um but you know mark corian who's a a fantastic coach he's he has nurtured these international um relationships that he has going all the way back to when he was at Franklin Pierce, you know, and, and at Hartford and, you know, the, the stops that he's had at smaller schools, um, he's brought those contacts into, uh, into division one. And I, I think a lot of, a lot of the programs that are using um, a, a high, a higher number of, of international players, you know, usually have a pretty good network out there that they've been able to bring the right type of kid, to play for in their system to, to then make that next step up to, uh, up to the NWSL or to go back, back to Europe or back to wherever to, uh, to play in that professional league. And of course, the more players you have and more international players you have playing like that, the more the word spreads among them and among their networks at home. It's like, Hey, you can get a free college education or a mostly free college education and play soccer. So I feel like it, you know, builds on itself. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, again, I'm, I'm kind of biased for the American player. Um, you know, I, 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 we look within the United States, we look within our state first um, to try to find the, the players that are going to be those impact players. But, you know, in it, longer ago, you really weren't going to find many of those um, real impact kids. You know, there was, you know, the girl who played for, for Notre Dame and kind of put put them on their, her shoulders from Finland. Um, on um, and in, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, those types of players were, were very, very rare. Well, there's more and more of those all the time now. And, you know, just that level of sophistication to come into a program and, and really help help develop the American players that are in that program is uh, has been a kind of a neat thing to see as well. Well, and one other topic I wanted to talk to you about, G, um, you know, we've seen the call over the last few years for the scheduling of college soccer to change. You know, it has a pretty compressed fall season. And I know um, the men's side is still pushing for a year long calendar. Where where do things stand right now for the for the women's game? Well, first off, for the men's on the men's side, they've been pushing for what they call a 21st century model, which is. Uh, a calendar that would line them up more with uh, what professional soccer looks like here in the United States, um, a fall season, a winter break, and then spring 
spring season into the national championships um, on the women's. And, and we, we all experienced that. Ironically, we experienced that in a, in a form in 2020, 21 uh, because of COVID 25 conferences did not play their seasons in the fall and they played in the spring. Whereas five, five of the conferences, which includes the SEC, um, we played in the fall and the spring. So we kind of got a chance to have a little bit of a learning laboratory from, uh, from that experience. Now, the men's, the men's proposal to uh, do this 21st century model, they call it, that'll be up for a vote in, uh, in April. So it'll be thumbs up or thumbs down on them being able to go forward with that. And the women's coaches, if you know, we, we support the men if that's what they want. Um, but the vast, vast, especially after the COVID season, the overwhelming majority of the coaches on the women's side uh, would like to keep the traditional model of playing in the fall, but we'd like to stretch the season out a little bit longer to, you know, lessen the chances of injury and uh, less, lessen the, the, the times that you're going to be away from class and, uh, and try to, Number one, if we can create more single game weekends instead of Thursday, Sunday weekends, the quality of the game will go up. The number of injuries should come down and, uh, you know, the, the, the game in general can can grow and move forward. So we, we're trying to get three things, uh, three different things. There's a there is a um, there's a proposal out right now. Twenty nineteen dash eighty one, I believe is what it is. That is to allow CARA or athletically related activities to start uh, in July, on July 1st. So it would be up to eight hours, four hours of which could be with skill instruction with the coaches that starts in July. And then leads that leads you as a, for four weeks into the start of the this regular season, just to more of an, you know, acclimatization uh process so that you're not just automatically jumping into preseason in two days and we've seen that that oftentimes you know leads to injuries later on so that's one <laughs> thing that's one thing that's going on that that a lot of us support because I think it's better for the players um, physically the second key is the exp- expansion of our season by two weeks to uh, the, the proposal that we're writing right now would be a consistent start of the preseason on August 1st, a consistent start of the regular seat. Your first regular season game could be as early as August 15th. And then the season would end on the third Sunday in November with the NCAA tournament after that. And then the third part that we're looking for is to fix our NCAA tournament. So it's more like we did in, in uh, 2020, the spring of 2021 where games were played every four days instead of you know weekends some rounds being yeah. friday sunday uh right. for the same reasons that we're just trying to take care of the players and so improve, those are the, three improve the game that you're watching right the game's better for everyone if, if the players are rested i agree i agree so now who who ultimately makes that decision is it a vote of all the d1 coaches of all the ncaa coaches for women's soccer how, how is that decided well, we wish it was up to the coaches. Um, you know, the men's the men's season is going to be determined by administrators, by the people um, in the NCAA council, which includes conferences, um, that they will be the ones that will vote yay or nay on that proposal going through. The women's side of things, we have up, up through, you know, July, 
to put our proposal for the expanded season into NCAA jargon and in proposal form. And then that would then hopefully go into the cycle in November. And then we're hoping could be voted upon next year and enacted as early as 2024. But th- there's a process to get there. So that's a lot of rallying you guys need to do to, to show those administrators, explain to those administrators why this this proposed and, schedule is and valuable. to show show a couple of key committees like the student athlete experience committee that you know we are trying to enhance their experience and and uh, you know and the championships committee that you know we can make our NCAA tournament better without actually raising any costs to it just kind of looking at it a different way to to try again to try to make the experience better for the players and and also for the fans. Well, G, thank you so much for taking the time to talk college soccer with me, also with all the NWSL angles. I always appreciate it, and good luck with that vote. Keep fighting the good fight. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. You have a great weekend. Time for a little Jen-splaining. Today's topic, the FIFA awards uh, that were announced earlier this week, a little background info and also details about how the voting breaks down specifically for the women's award. So the FIFA award for best women's player was first handed out in early 2002 for the 2001 calendar year. And yep, it went to Mia Hamm. At the time, the award was called the FIFA Women's Player of the Year Award. FIFA rebranded their awards in 2016, and now it's known as the best FIFA women's player. Alexi Pateas became the first Spaniard to win the Women's Award earlier this week. Now, voting for the award comes from four groups, each group getting 25% of the final say. So first group is all current national team captains, then all current national team coaches, then international soccer media, one media person per country, and then fan voting. And fan voting, you have to be registered on FIFA.com, so it's one vote per, per fan. Each ballot that you submit, you put three picks. And for the record, U.S. Women's National Team coach Vladko Anonofsky, with his three picks, he listed Sam Kerr, Vivian Miedema, and Alexi Puteas, while U.S. Captain Becky Sauerbrunn voted for Puteas, Sweden's Magdalena Eriksson, and also Sam Kerr. Now, unlike the FIFA Best Award, the FIFA Pro Best 11 is voted on only by professional players. FIFA Pro is the association of the International Association of Professional Players. And players only vote for their own position, similar to the Oscars, where directors only vote for directors, actors only vote for actors. And like the best player, you name three players for that position on the ballot. So the best 11 is comprised of one goalkeeper, three defenders, three midfielders, three forwards, and then the final spot goes to whichever field player has the most votes after those first nine. So you may not agree with who's on the FIFA Pro Best 11, but unlike many awards, it is solely voted on by current professional players. A little side note about the Ballon d'Or Award that is handed out each December. That award is owned by the French magazine France Football, which has awarded the Ballon d'Or for men since 1956. Now, for six years, from 2010 through 2015, the Ballon d'Or partnered with FIFA. So for those six years, the Men's Player of the Year award, FIFA Ballon d'Or, was one and the same. But after the 2015 calendar year, 
France Football ended that partnership and went back to having their own awards. And then they added a woman's Ballon d'Or in 2018. And it was at the Ballon d'Or ceremony, that one in 2018, that Ada Hegerberg was asked to twerk, not at the equivalent FIFA ceremony. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Chris Hawkman, Aussie, Matilda's football, down under, W League, A League women, whatever we want to say, expert. We just put all those words all together for you, Chris. How does that sound? Perfect. I mean, maybe there's a good acronym that we can come up with for that. But anyway, you're my, you're my go-to Aussie when, when I'm, I'm feeling the need to talk Australian football, or more importantly, we are 18 months out from the start of what I know is going to be your favorite Women's World Cup ever. Yeah, I like absolutely. I'm already like planning my tickets to the final. I'm already like I've told my family expect me on the couch uh, <laughs> next June. Um, I was supposed to have a sabbatical next year, but I don't know if that's going to happen now. Um, but yeah, like everything's. I'm already planning everything to be there. Um, already looking at getting my tickets to the final. Like I am. 100% ready. It's just a question of whether that final's in Sydney or Melbourne. And uh, from an entire biased perspective, I hope it's in Sydney. Oh, yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, it looks, from everything I've seen, it looks like they got it going on. They're making good plans. You know, we now have the schedules. We, of course, obviously, we don't have all the teams yet. We probably won't have the draw, I would assume, until after the Men's World Cup is over at, at the end of the year. But it's like bit by bit, those those pieces falling into place. What can you tell us about how how it's being thought of down under? Yeah, I think everybody's excited. Like there's been this momentum for women's football in Australia that I don't think we've seen before. Like there's been moments where I've really thought women's football and the Matildas are breaking through. We think about um, when equal pay was secured. That was a big moment. Um, the W League getting started, that was another moment. Um, beating Brazil in the World Cup, you know, there were the, all these right. moments. But this feels like the moment um, where it can really take off. I think having Sam Kerr being this just massive personality and a very – she's just very Australian. I don't know a better way to say this. <laughs> um, but, you know, swearing in an interview, very Australian. Um <laughs> So she's the perfect person for it. And she doesn't have, because the previous people we've had in that kind of position, like Lisa Devana, um, have been like, yeah, also aggressively Australian, but in a different way. Um, right. And that kind of rubbed people the wrong way sometimes, um, which is not fair to Lisa Devana at all, but it, it was what it was. And I think Sam Kerr has united the country in a way that others in that kind of spot haven't. And just women's sport in Australia in general is having a moment. Like, um, you know, in the tennis, Ash Barty's the world number one. Um, so there's just this really, really big focus on women's sport. We just had the Women's Cricket World Cup in Australia. Um, so it's really a big moment for Australian women's sport um, in general, but football especially and having this World Cup, it's going to be huge. It's going to be like, I don't think you can overstate how big having this tournament is to I mean, it's Australia so many and firsts. New Zealand. 
Right. It's so many firsts. So it's our first joint, you know, host World Cup situation for Women's World Cup. You know, first one to be, um, you know, hosted hosted by Oceania, which, of course, it's only New Zealand who's in Oceania now because the Australia Federation's in, in the Asian Confederation. Um, first with 32 teams, you know, so we're going to see a larger tournament than we've ever seen before. Um, it's, I, I'm so excited about this one. Um, I keep like looking up hotel rooms, even though it's like too early to book, but I just like, you know, when is it going to come? When is it going to come? Um, and I also, I, I do think it's going to be so huge for Australia just from watching those two USA Australia games in November, like the buzz at those games, how quickly those those tickets sold, right? Like the the local support, right? Um, that's that's what I always love about seeing a World Cup in in new countries is is seeing the local support come out. And when you have a women's World Cup in a more remote situation like Australia, New Zealand, than say Europe, where you have all these other countries that can take the train, right? or a very short flight, um, that local support is going to be so much more important. But I, I think the Aussies and also the Kiwis are going to deliver it. Yeah, I think both countries, and I think a lot of people up here in America and probably in Europe don't understand how primed Australia is at hosting major international events. Um, I know we've spoken about the Sydney Olympics a lot. Um, Australia's hosting the Olympics again in 2032 in Brisbane. Um, they've hosted, they just hosted the men's cricket world cup, the women's cricket world cup. They're about to host another men's cricket world cup, the um, men's rugby world cup in 2003, men's rugby world cup in 2003. Um, New Zealand has hosted multiple rugby world cups. They've hosted youth events for FIFA. Um, these two countries are very, very good at hosting major international events. They're just not the events that Americans and Europeans are used to watching. And so right. the different kind of events, like the only event of that list that I feel like the majority of Americans would have known about was Sydney 2000. Um, right. And the, the stadium that I think the final is going to be in, it's probably going to be in Stadium Australia. That was the Olympic Stadium. Um, right. So there's this very exciting coming back home kind of thing. Um, and that's been the scene of a lot of great Australian football moments. Um over the years. So I, I think that'll be the final. Um, but yeah, both of these places are going to be great at hosting. I, I pity the Europeans who are just going to somehow put up with all this travel. Um, <laughs> Cause it's certainly going to be geographically the biggest world cup we've ever seen. It's basically traveling Perth to Wellington is the biggest um, top flight derby in the world. Um, but does, derby, but I, I was looking at the the group progressions a few weeks ago. I don't think any any team has to do Perth to Wellington. There should be no Perth to Wellington travel. I yeah. imagine <laughs> that they're going to do a a Melbourne Adelaide, a Melbourne Sydney Brisbane kind of situation. Right. Perth, I was Adelaide looking at the groups. And it was it was very logically done, and some groups will only do. New Zealand before they hop over to Australia for, you know, knockout stage. It made me think a little bit of the 2015 women's world cup where there was one team. I can't remember who it was, but I remember looking at the the travel progression. Someone had to do Moncton to Vancouver, which is pretty brutal. So we've got, we've got a couple of groups that are rough. So group D 
has to mm-hmm. do D three will have to go from Perth to Sydney. Um, so that's a bit rough. The D four team that they play in the first game, they only have to go to Hindmarsh, so they only go from Perth to Adelaide. Um, and and for and people then, who don't know, know the Australian geography the way that Chris and I know the Australian geography, yeah, sorry. Perth, Perth to Sydney is basically LA to DC. That is yeah. crossing the United States. That is a full, you know, that's a a, a big flight. Um, and then most, F, F other, other than Perth, yeah, other than Perth, um, almost everything is East Coast or Southeast Coast if it's in Australia, right? Yeah, when Australia hosted the Asian Cup uh, a few years ago, they didn't even play anywhere other than the East Coast. It was a very controversial decision. They only mm-hmm. played East Coast venues. They didn't play anything out. The furthest west they got was Melbourne, which would be like saying Tampa is the furthest west we went. Um, not very, basically. <laughs> so, you know, it was um, that was controversial. I'm glad they are spreading the games around more. Yes. From a selfish perspective, I think Central well, Coast... Especially when you have... Now games. you have 64 games. You have the same number of games that the Men's World Cup has. So there there are more games to spread around. There's, you know, eight groups, not six groups, not four like we used to have, right? So, so it can be that bigger tournament. Like, it totally wouldn't make sense to do... A, a double host situation if it was still the smaller format, right? And I'm I'm really excited about how many games New Zealand has. Like it's a it's a fairly equitable split on the whole. Like obviously yeah. Australia has more, but it's, I think it's more equitable me. than we were expecting. Like I, yeah, Auckland I thought it was has a semi final. Yeah, I thought it was going to be so much heavier for Australia, but it is pretty equitable considering number of stadiums each one has. And yeah, and they've basically set it up so if by some miracle New Zealand makes it, they'll play everything in New Zealand until the final. Right, right. So, so you're, maxi- you're maximizing those crowds. Yeah, so yeah. that's the setup. I'm sure Australia is going to be playing all over. I just looked it up. Australia's only playing in the group stage. They're only going to be Sydney, Brisbane, and Melbourne while making somebody in their group fly from Sydney to Perth, um, which is a baller <laughs> move. And I, I applaud it. And I really hope it's it's like some small European, to like the Netherlands. I hope they get a charter flight for that. Uh, yeah, like I'm sure they will, but wow. Um, well, and I also can, look at the schedule. Want. I also look at the schedule, and since now we are at 32 teams – it means that entire group stage, there are no off days because there's enough groups to cycle through, giving everybody enough rest, right? But it means that there's no off days. And we haven't had that for the women before because we haven't had, you know, enough teams, enough groups. So now you have, just like the men's, that wonderful, it's like just what, a little over two weeks, kind of where it's like, there's at least two games a day, sometimes four. I mean, yeah, to me, that's yeah. one of the most heavenly parts of, of a World Cup cycle is the just like games, 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 you know. And then you get yeah, to that I mean, one rest day. Now. And then and then the next day after that, the round of 16 starts, right? It's just, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very excited for everybody complaining to me on Twitter about it's 4 a.m. Why is this game at 4 a.m.? Um, because I can promise you 
they will not schedule kickoffs for the United States. Um, they aren't the Tokyo Olympics. They will schedule them for the local crowd. Um, right. Because it's not going to be like the Tokyo Olympics. They will have crowds. Like, Tokyo, right. you could do it because nobody was allowed in anyway. Um, and and the, the time, the time difference is so great that there's almost no, there's no need um, to shift things a little. Because shifting a little isn't going to help at all. either anyway. Right? Yeah, it's a good um, point. It, yeah. So it's like, hey, this is the same thing as when the Men's World Cup was in uh, South Korea and Japan in 2002. I remember watching U.S.-Mexico at 1.30 in the morning and U.S.-Germany at, at, at 6 a.m. But, you know, that's what it is, you know. Um, this, is, this is what Australians have to do. Australians and New Zealanders have to do for literally every World Cup. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's, it can be nice with the no shoes sympathy. on the other foot for a change. I have zero sympathy. <laughs> every World Cup I watched until 2010, I watched at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, so yeah, well, it's Chris, nice. Chris, the tell me, on the tell other me where you think, tell me where you think the Matildas are right now. Um, you know, we've, we've got Asian cup coming up. Um, obviously they don't have to qualify, right. They just kind of participate yeah, to get some, to get some games. Um, but you know, what is, where do you think they are right now? And what do you think the next 12 months of preparation are going to look like for them? Yeah, the Asian Cup's vital as much as they've expanded the Asian Cup as well. So there's going to be a lot of, like, brace yourselves for some very one-sided games. And I'm not just talking about right. Australia. I think Korea and Vietnam are going to have some games that they blow somebody out. Right. Um, but which, who are that? That's that next tier. I think it's good for them. Um, yes. And it's really good. I'm really excited because it's in India, um, which is not a country we really ever think of with football. Um, but the Indian crowds really, they're football mad. If you've ever watched the ISL on ESPN, they, they love their football in India. Um, it just gets overshadowed by cricket cause they really love cricket. Um, right. But Indian football fans are very devoted and very passionate. And I really hope this goes really well for them. Um, cause I could definitely see India hosting a world cup down the line. Oh, wow. um, so I'm excited. I'm really excited to see India hosting this tournament because, one, I think it's going to be great for Indian football. Um, their women's team doesn't play nearly enough, um, so it's going to be great for them to get some games, even if they get smashed by the Matildas in the opener. Um, but it's just going to be such a vital tournament for all these teams, and I think we'll know a lot about where Australia stands after the Asian Cup, right? Like, if they go out and they win the Asian Cup, I think you can really start talking about Australia as world champions at home. Um, if they don't win the world, don't win the Asian Cup, then I think that argument gets a lot harder to make. Um, I'm phenomenally biased. Um, I'm going to say that I think Australia's a real shot. Um, that said, I said that last time, and they got knocked out in the second round. Um, <laughs> but but sometimes some that, circumstances. That home- that home advantage really pays off. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Like, the Australian team can obviously handle the travel because they have to travel to Australia to play all these games anyway. Um, For the most part, a lot of the players now don't play in Australia. Um, And then there's there's just an inherent advantage. The Australian crowd for any sport, Australians would, if there was a letter-opening competition, Australians (laughs) would show up and go wild for the Australian opening the letter. Um, 
They'll never host the World Chess Championships in Australia because the crowd would be too wild. It's astounding that we have a tennis tournament there. Um, like, they're very loud and they're very, very passionate. Um, doesn't mean you're going to win, but it can be the difference in those tight games. Like, I think you play you play that Sweden-Australia semifinal in Australia, and I think the result's the other way around. Oh, um, definitely. Maybe the bronze medal match as well. You play that game in Australia, maybe it's the other way around. Except we have data on that that shows that it wouldn't have been because it's the USA won. <laughs> Um, well, tell but, me about tell me about um, the the a, the A League women used to be W League, but they they rebranded, so now it's A League Men, A League Women. Um, you know how that's going to help this World Cup, and also that you do have so many of the top national teamers. They moved on, right? Playing in in Europe, most of them, some still in NWSL, like. What's that looking like for A-League women? I mean, does it mean more players are getting a chance to develop? Uh, you know, you, you, we're up to 10 teams now. You said there's going to be two more um, soon. Like, tell, tell me about the A-League women. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time for the A-League women. Um, as much as it would be easy to spin it as, oh, you know, the best players have left and so – it's not that good. Um, I think it's a really exciting time. Like Mackenzie Hawkesbury is the second highest scorer. And if you told me you knew who Mackenzie Hawkesbury was six months ago, <laughs> I would have called you nope. a liar. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like it just shows that, yeah, okay, Hannah Wilkinson is the top scorer. We, we know Hannah Wilkinson. Like I'm not saying it's right. all these players that have come out of nowhere. But, yeah, Mackenzie Hawkesbury, what a season. Five goals. She scored a hat trick. Um, it's it's exciting. It's really cool to see these players get an opportunity. I think the thing I'm really excited about with the change um, in branding, so now all the leagues in Australia are branded A-League, so it's A-League men, A-League women, A-League youth. Um, what they've done is they've started a combined club championship, and they're going to give out, I think they're giving out a financial prize and a cool trophy for it, um, which if you've seen Australian trophies, they're not great. Um, the, that really forces these teams to actually invest in their women's team and try and do something competitive. So, um, it's also going to lead to every men's team having a women's team, um, next year. So the central coast and Western United are coming into the league in 2022, um, which is exciting. I don't know why the central coast didn't come in this year. I think it's just because they didn't want 11. Um, right. They didn't want another number, but because the Central Coast was ready, they the Central Coast has renovated their stadium to accommodate having a A League women's team. Um, I don't think anyone else is doing that. Uh, wow! So they've they've made it possible. Basically, they only had two change rooms, and the rule in the A League was the rule from A League was if you want an A League women's team, you need to have four so that you can have double headers. Right. Um, so that was the deal. Um, the Mariners used to be in the league. They didn't care. They would just play their W League game separate. Um, so it didn't really matter or make them change in a tent that one time. So um, classy. that didn't go over well. Yeah, you know, we're classy on the Central Coast. So um, it's an exciting time. Like, it's, I think the really exciting thing is it's the first time that an Australian women's league in any sport has had a New Zealand team. Um, 
Australia's oh, a lot like the, the Australian Wellington. sporting landscape, Wellington Phoenix. Um, yeah. Don't get me wrong. They're getting absolutely destroyed every week. Um, but it's really exciting to see them in. And it's going to be so good for New Zealand football having this place to play because, yes, New Zealand has its own women's competition. Yes, it's very competitive, but the standards are not as high as the W League. And right. so and we've putting seen, your best players in that team is yeah. going to be so good. We've seen you know, the New Zealand women's national team, they've been on the international stage a long time, right? Especially once Australia moved over to the Asian Confederation, they were, you know, always getting the Oceania slot, right? But you can see that they've kind of plateaued, you know, where where they're performing well, but then, you know, they don't get out of the group stage. So they, they need something that's developing more players, yeah, and I think this will really help with that because now you're going to have somewhere at a higher standard to put your best players. The way I look at Wellington Phoenix in the A-League women is they are essentially a New Zealand football championship all-star team. Um, like they're the best players from the local competition in a lot of ways. Yeah, not all of them. Some of them are from outside, but it's a big deal. Like, you know, Gemma Lewis is the coach there, which is really cool. Um Unfortunately, they're not playing in New Zealand, um, which is disappointing. Um, I know a lot of the fans out there would be happy. Where do they play? They're playing in Wollongong um, Ah. with the men's team. Men's team is also playing in Wollongong. Um, Is that just for travel, ease of travel? Just for, yeah, while COVID's on, they don't want Uh, a COVID lockdown to stop. Yeah, so that's the thing. Because realistically... Hey, Australia knows Australia and New Zealand know this better than anybody. This situation could change in an instant. Right. And you don't want it changing while like Perth Glory is in Wellington and then they're just stuck in Wellington for three weeks and then you have to reschedule your whole competition. Um because a team just can't play, can't train, can't do anything for three weeks. Um so they're so that's not, that's not a long-term plan for Wellington Phoenix. That's no, it's only for, it's only for, for this. Hopefully, hopefully COVID is not this bad forever. Um, hopefully, everybody gets vaccinated. Um, hint, hint. Um, a certain <laughs> tennis player learned about that this week. Um, but the Wollongong is an interesting one because they do have a really big football history in Australia. They've won the old NSL in the men's league. Um, They really want an A-league team. So um, having Wellington there, I think, really boosts that. And a lot of my friends on the Central Coast have gone to Wollongong games, um, games in Wollongong. You can get a train. It's not that hard um, because it's as cheap as chips because not many people are paying to go see Wellington Phoenix play in in Wollongong. I saw the Toronto Raptors play in Tampa and nobody was there. Um, it's a bit better than that for Wellington. And the other cool thing they're doing this year as well to minimize travel is they've been playing some Perth home games in New South Wales. So when Perth will play like Newcastle, Perth will play a home game. So like this weekend, um, Perth's playing a double header at the um, Central Coast Mariners men's side is playing their first game after a COVID break. And the Perth women are playing Western Sydney women um, as a doubleheader against the uh, Central Coast Mariners and Melbourne City men's game, um, which is cool because Central Coast hasn't had a women's game in a long time and it's going to be a real good opportunity. So if you're listening and you're from the Central Coast, get out to that game so you can show them that you'll support your own women's team, which is coming next year. 
Um, now, now, if someone wanted to watch these games from the States, is that possible? Because last year we had a lot of them were showing up on ESPN+. Plus. Um, I don't see that this year. Yeah, so there's been a rights change in Australia. Um, so Australia and the rights holder is Paramount, um, mm-hmm. which is the same Paramount we have here, Paramount+. Plus. Um, there's been a big benefit of that is it's allowed simultaneous kickoffs, which weren't allowed on Fox Sports. And oh. it's brought brought back a lot of the great commentators that we used to love that Fox didn't want to pay for. Um, nice. But um, there was some confusion because the A-Leagues originally posted out that the USA rights holder was Paramount+. Plus. And yeah. every week I would go to the app and, and I would look there. for it. Yeah. Um, it's on YouTube. Um, the catch is you can only watch it live. Um, it doesn't get archived, uh, <laughs> but it is there. So you can watch. So for folks in the West Coast, this is probably better news. Um, or Hawaii. Um, but yeah, in, in the US, YouTube is where you can watch it. It is um, The channel's called Keep It Up. Keep Up. Okay. Yeah, keep Up. It's the name of the channel. It's basically Australia's done this weird thing where keepup.com.au is the home for all the A-Leagues. I don't know why. Uh, they had <laughs> A-League.com.au as a domain already. Um, but you do uh, Australian Premier Leagues. Um, <laughs> so, But if you're ever up and you know there's a W League game on, if you go to YouTube and you type in the name of that game, I promise you'll it find it. Come up. I promise you can watch it. Um, since the U.S. doesn't have a rights holder. Um, I'm hoping that changes because I would love to not have to be up all night um, to watch teams play. Uh, but Well, I saw that Paramount uh, announcement too, and I was like, oh, sweet. And then, yeah, yeah I, I did the I, exact I same find thing. Because as, as we've every seen, week I would go. Paramount CBS has been picking up a, a, a lot of football rights, you know, with there's some UEFA Women's World Cup qualifying, obviously, NWSL. They had Women's Champions League, you know, lots of great stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really a exciting time. We're, we're in a golden age of soccer broadcasting. If, yeah. if you can name something you want to watch, I guarantee you can see it. I watched FC Flora's women's team play a game uh, a few <laughs> weeks ago. FC Flora is uh, the Estonian champions. So. Oh, well, I, I was calling to um, high school games this past weekend in, in suburban Houston that were a free live stream, right? So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's amazing what, what's out there. Well, Chris, any last thoughts for um, just Australia women's soccer, national team, or, or, or the A-League, like things that you're hoping to see in the next 12 months or so? Yeah, like I'm really hoping to see a lot more cross promo. Like I, I think the the A League rebrand has a phenomenal opportunity to cross promote all three leagues. Um, sure, I don't think A League youth is going to get much attention, but like I think there's a real big chance there for all three leagues to cross pollinate. And I think they're trying. Um, I would like them to commit to it a bit better. Um, sometimes they commit to just calling everything A League, and sometimes they'll call it A League Women to differentiate it from the, quote, real yeah. league. Um, I don't like that. Either do it all or do none of it. Because um, when it happened, it was a really exciting announcement, right? They were like, oh, yeah, we're calling it A-League men now. And I was like, oh, okay. Because usually 
sports don't do that. It's the women that get a term, but the men don't. And so I really liked it. I thought it was great. I want them to commit to that a bit better, um, be consistent with it, and either always call all of them the full name, so A-League men, A-League women, A-League youth, or just call yeah. them all A-League and let people figure it out. They'll figure it out. Yeah. Like, you, you can see a picture of Canberra United and know that's A-League women. You can see the picture yeah. of the game and know what league it is. You're not tricking anybody. Um, so just yeah. commit to it. Either, either do it for all or do it for none of them um, because they got a lot of credit when they did it. Um, and then like two weeks later, they got back to calling it A-League for the men without the men um, on the end of it. And that was really frustrating because yeah, like that, that's, what, that's why I, yeah, I wish that would be normalized uh, a little more because I know there's people that get real, really frustrated any, anytime you add the W to anything, right? And, and I'm like, I'm totally okay with it being the Women's World Cup, WWC. I'm totally okay with that. Let's call the men's the Men's World, the Cup. Men's World Cup. And that's what I World tend World to Cup. do. I call it the Men's yep. World Cup. Um, so that it's clear they're different competitions, but they're of equal value. Men's World Cup, Women's World Cup. Not men's and ho- oh here's the one for the girls it's the real one yeah like it's yeah. it's a challenge so i'd like a to commit a bit better to that i think they're trying um you know never look at the comments on the a-league facebook page but I think they're <laughs> trying. Um, it's been really nice to see like it's nice to only have to follow one twitter account now instead yeah. of having to follow four of them um yeah. it's nice to get everything and i think it'll be good i, I think that they'll have some unexpected things like i think people will follow the men's league who might have been only following the women's before yeah, um, and that that does happen i've, I've seen it happen i've seen people find people the don't understand the that a different audience and I've, like, I've seen people find the men's game through through women's yeah it's just like it's yeah. there's not necessarily a, a you know a 10 foot wall between them yeah, well, chris thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk aussie soccer with me i always enjoy it always appreciate your time and uh Here's looking forward to uh, July 20th. Is it July 20th, 2020? July 20th. All right. Not that far away. All right. Time to wrap it up with the back four. And my apologies for the random construction noise in the background if you hear it. First and foremost, U.S. Women's National Team in camp in Austin, preparing for next month's She Believes tournament. The U23s are also there in Austin training. Uh, that that roster, that pool of players, will be most of who uh, will be on the She Believes Cup roster next month. The women will face Iceland, New Zealand, and Czech Republic starting February 18th. For more about the tournament, check out ussoccer.com. And next, we have a date now for the 2022 Under-20 Women's World Cup. It will be August 10th through 28th in Costa Rica, 16 nations total competing for the trophy. This event is held every other year, always the even years, uh, same as the U-17 Women's World Cup. However, it was canceled in 2020 due to COVID. Uh, The U.S. women had qualified for that one uh, back when Laura Harvey was coach. Now, last time the U.S. women 
won the U-20 Women's World Cup was 2012. Sorry, 2012. <laughs> All right. Also, don't forget lots of great Wosipedia resources at keepernotes.com. Just click on the link that says Wosopedia. You can find my Woso calendar, unofficial NWSL rosters by club, U.S. Women's National Team call-up history, and a lot more. And part of that more, of course, is always my last plug, the Keeper Notes Almanac. I'm working on the one for 2021, which will include data from every season of NWSL through 2021. I have some older almanacs available for sale on the website. I also did a championship almanac for the first time ever. So that has all NWSL regular season finals from 2013 through 2021. Um, And I have a few Challenge Cup and Dash Almanacs left as well. You can buy print versions. You can buy PDF versions. Uh, Right now, there's only shipping to the U.S. for the the print editions. But if you're interested in international shipping, just send me an email, keeper at keepernotes.com, and we will try to figure something out. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. want to give big thanks to all my listeners near and far, everybody who tweets about it, shares with friends, uh, sends me feedback. Always appreciate it. Um, thanks to the Beautiful Game Network for hosting, and thanks always to my producer, Sean, for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.